This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Exodus 4, verses 24 through 28. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Mike. Again, uh, welcome to New City. If you're visiting, we've been studying Exodus uh, verse by verse during our uh, sermon time. And as we pick up in chapter 4, verse 24, this is what we know so far. If you're visiting, this is what you've missed. By God's promise and power, uh, the people of Israel are multiplying in the land of Egypt, but they're multiplying in the midst of horrific oppression and slavery. And, And God has heard the Israelites' cries, and he has seen their suffering, he tells Moses, I've come down to deliver them. I've come, I've come down uh, to do something about it, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God has chosen Moses as his human deliverer, his human uh, representative. Moses spent his earliest days and years in the house of his biological Israelite parents. But once he was weaned, probably around age two or three, uh, Moses lived in Pharaoh's house, actually, uh, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then At the age of 40, uh, Moses began to see himself as and began to identify himself with the Israelites. And so in light of this uh, identification with his own uh, people, Pharaoh sought to kill Moses, his grandson. And Moses was forced into exile. He fled into the wilderness. He fled into the land of Midian. So during the 40 years that Moses was in Midian, he gets married. Uh, He has two sons. And he's making a living as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. So at the age of 80, uh, Yahweh meets with Moses, and and God converts him at the burning bush. And God reminds Moses of his covenant promises to Israel that he had given hundreds of years before to a man named Abram. And, And God calls Moses into his mission to be the human representative and deliverer for the Israelites. So if you were here, you remember Moses hesitated, he doubted, he even rebelled. And at the end of all of that, uh, he finally follows God's call. So in today's text, uh, as he travels to Egypt with his family, Moses tells us as the author about two meetings that he had, two encounters that he had along the way. And and, uh, we're going to focus most of our time, probably 90% of our time on the first encounter, God encountering Moses along the way. And then we're going to conclude with a very brief mention um, of the second meeting that Moses had with his older brother, Moses. So here we go. Uh, Let's kind of look at this bizarre passage this way. Let's kind of ask it four questions. All right. What happened? Why did it happen? Why didn't it happen? And what happened? What happened? Why did it happen? Why didn't it happen? And then 
what happens. It sounds like a good riddle. So hopefully it won't feel like a riddle when we're done. Uh, what happened? Uh, thinking about Moses' meeting with Yahweh, what happens? To start off, we have to be very careful uh, to not go too far in describing what definitively or exactly happened. We have to be careful. There's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, in the, the original Hebrew text. Uh, the uncertainty around what actually happened is brought about by several factors. If you have your insert, uh, I'll kind of refer to some realities that might help you understand this. First, there are multiple pronouns in the passage that have no clear antecedent. So in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Uh, Who is him? Uh, The NIV translation, a very popular translation in the English, provides Moses' name. But there's nothing in the Hebrew text to support that. It's, It's a guess. The hymn of verse 24 could be Moses. It could be either of his two sons. It's just a man we know. Verse 25, then Sipporah took a flint. It's a hard pebble. It's a sharp stone. And, and she cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Now, if you look at the footnote in your English Standard Version translation, it's going to indicate that, that in the Hebrew it actually says his feet. And so the ESV here decides to supply Moses' name instead of his uh, feet. The fact is Zipporah uh, could have uh, touched the foreskin of her son's feet or Moses' feet. Uh, We can't be sure. And the actual word is throw, not touch. So Zipporah threw her son's foreskin. It's like a precursor to some Olympic event. Um, we We don't have it anymore. All right. So a lot of pronouns that we don't know the antecedent to, okay? Uh, The second factor that brings about uncertainty is the meaning, uh, let's say uncertainty in the meaning of the text, is uh, the fact that feet oftentimes in the Old Testament is a euphemism uh, for male genitalia. So most of the commentators will tell you that Zipporah threw someone's foreskin at someone's genitals, either her son's or Moses's. But again, the Hebrew word is foot, so it could just mean feet. So there's a little bit of uncertainty. Uh, Next, uh, there's uncertainty as to what actually happened to the one who Yahweh uh, met and sought to kill. Verse 24. There's a clue in verse 26, though. Verse 26, if you let your eyes fall down to that portion of the insert. So he let him alone. We presume that Yahweh let alone whoever he sought to kill. Uh, Let alone is this infrequently used word in the Old Testament. It means to be idle, to sink, to relax, to subside, to have respite. And so if Yahweh gave this in response to the circumcision, then we can assume that in seeking to kill him, Yahweh had the person worked up, lifted up, tensed up, firmed up. So for this reason, it seems rather safe to assume that the person sought by Yahweh was experiencing some sort of seizure. And Yahweh gave them relief or respite or release in verse 26. So what happened in this encounter with Yahweh? Four things. First, God sought to kill somebody. And it's likely that that somebody was convulsing. Second, Zipporah grabbed the foreskin of her son, her adult son, her 30 to 35-year-old son, cut it off completely, and threw it at someone's feet or genitals. Third, the Lord relented from killing somebody when the foreskin hit the target. And fourth, see how much we know? Isn't this great? Zipporah said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, whatever that means, and nobody 
really knows. And now listen, there's some other things about the text that we're never going to know the answer to. How did Zipporah know that circumcising her son would cause God to relent? Did she know it because she and Moses had a conversation in the past about Egyptian circumcision versus Israelite circumcision? Did she know it because her dad was a Midianite priest and she just knew how to do this sort of thing? Did she know it because Yahweh was there seizing whomever and he told her what to do? We, We have no idea. But what we know is that what she did was incredibly impactful. So for what it's worth, pure conjecture, I think Moses was convulsing. Gershom was awkwardly circumcised by his elderly mother. Zipporah threw the foreskin at her convulsing husband's feet, if you know what I mean, and God relented from taking Moses' life. So let's close in prayer. Sing a hymn. (laughs) Beat the non-denominational people to lunch. Amen. Amen. So... If that's what happened, let's ask, why did it happen, okay? Why did Yahweh show up seeking to kill? That's the question I want to answer. Why did it happen? So to understand this, we're going to need like a five to ten minute history lesson, okay? Hundreds of years before, Yahweh initiates relationship with a 75-year-old man named Abram. In Genesis 12, Yahweh calls Abram out of his father's country into the land of Canaan. And the Lord made some amazing promises to Abram that from his loins would come a great nation, that he would have a great name, that his people would be a blessing to all other nations, that one day what was the land of Canaan will become his people's land, his offspring's land, nation, name, fame, and land. And then several years go by, maybe even a decade And the Lord meets with Abram again in Genesis 15, and and he says, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. And Abraham says, you've made these promises, a great nation coming from me, and and the number uh, of uh, my people possessing the land, but you have given me no offspring to date. And, And Yahweh says in chapter 15, verse 5, Yahweh brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And then he reminds them, I'm going to give you this land that you're in right now to possess. And Abram says, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God responds to Abram by cutting or making a covenant with Abram. God had Abram bring multiple animals to him, including a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And God told Abram, cut in half the heifer, the goat, and the ram and make a path through the middle. And while this is going to seem really foreign to us, it was very common to Abram for for something. It was something he clearly understood on significant matters uh, between men in the ancient Near East. they They would cut a covenant. They would make this legally binding contract with one another. And normally, once the animals were slaughtered and separated, the two parties would hold hands or something else, and they would walk through the pieces, and they would say to one another, if I break this covenant, so happens to me what has happened to the animals. And so God is giving Abram a command he clearly understood. And the text tells us that a deep sleep fell upon Abram. He was covered by a dreadful darkness, and he still heard God somehow say to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they'll be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God is prophesying uh, the people in Egypt. 
Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with a great possession. He is prophesying the plunder with which they'll leave the nation. Verse 15 in Genesis 15, as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they, the nation, the people, they'll come back here in the fourth generation, talking about what Moses is experiencing right now. And then shockingly, Abram doesn't walk through the dead animals. But verse 17, God appeared as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, and God alone passed through the pieces, saying that if he or his chosen one broke the covenant, what happened to the animals would happen to him. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. Several years go by, it's Genesis chapter 17, 25 years from when Abram met Yahweh. Uh, Abram's 99 years old, and Yahweh meets him again. He appears to him again. He changes his name to Abraham, and and he reminds him of his uh, promises, and he reminds him of his covenant. In 15 verses, 10 times the word covenant comes up in Genesis 17. It is the big idea. And then the Lord finally indicates to Abram, to Abraham in chapter 17, that while his covenant was graciously initiated, that there were obligations and there were responsibilities uh, that Abraham needed to keep in the covenant. That that God gave Abraham a general stipulation in Genesis 17, and he gave him one very specific stipulation. The general stipulation for Abraham is this, verse 1. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So blameless is not a word so much for moral perfection, although moral perfection results from blamelessness. Uh, to be blameless is, is a word for wholeness. It's a word for fit. It's a word for integrity. It's a, it's a word for appropriateness. And so the general stipulation that Abram was given based on God's covenant and God's promises was basically this. Abraham, live all of life in God's presence. Walk before me. And for every move, every decision, every action to be made, every one is to be made with a constant awareness of God. What are his purposes? What are his ways? What are his promises? What is his glory? And this is what it means to be blameless. So walk before me and be blameless. General stipulation. But in addition to that general responsibility, Abraham had in light of God's covenant, God also gave him one specific stipulation, one rule, like the one law of the book of Genesis. You ready? Verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And we're like, really? That's the one rule? That's the one law of Genesis? To have the foreskin cut off from a man? And we say, why? And God answers in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation shall surely be circumcised. So the Lord says that circumcision is a sign. It's a mark. It's a physical indicator that God wanted uh, um, on his people, pointing to the fact that they were his. They're the recipients of his promises, and their responsibility is to walk ever before him and to make every decision in light of him. And we're saying, why not a tattoo? a pierced ear, a what-would-Jesus-do bracelet? And the answer is a lot more than this, but it's at least this. God's promise to Abraham about land and people and blessing and fame all started with the need for one seed, one son. 
the promises would domino from God blessing his reproductive organ. Circumcision signified, it pointed to a reality outside of itself, beyond itself. It signified not only was Abram and his people uh, identified with God, it symbolized something that needed to happen inside of the Israelite. While, While physical circumcision was required, physical circumcision never fully met the requirement. While physical circumcision was required, physical circumcision never fully met the requirement. Multiple places in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible says that what ultimately matters is the circumcision of the heart. Putting away stiffness and stubbornness and deadness in the heart through a spiritual circumcision. So in Deuteronomy, for example, of course, circumcise your son physically at eight days. But more importantly, Deuteronomy 10, circumcise your heart. Cut away the deadness of the heart. The physical circumcision points to something that needs to happen inside of us. Deuteronomy 30, God says, when you haven't done this, when you haven't circumcised your heart, when you haven't lived before me, when you repent, God promises, I will circumcise your heart. So circumcision on the eighth day signified something beyond itself. It pointed to the promises of God. It pointed to the need of man. Okay, so circumcision was the first specific stipulation in the covenant. So back to Moses, all right? You remember Moses, the guy we were talking about a little bit ago? Convulsions, circumcision, foreskins flying, that guy, okay? (laughs) Go back to him. Why did it happen? When God came to Moses, it says in Exodus 2 and Exodus 3 that God remembered his covenant. He remembered his promises. And so in God's mind, he is now ready. The time is right. It's time to act. It's time to deliver his people. It's time to give them plunder. It's time to give them the promised land. And in saying to Moses, in response to my covenant, in response to my grace, I want you to live responsibly before me. And I want you to symbolize this living in the circumcision of yourself and your son on the eighth day. And if you go back to Genesis 17, that part about Abraham, this is what God says in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. Should sound familiar. From his people, he should be cut off because he has broken my covenant. So why did it happen? God is seeking to cut off. He is seeking to kill. He is seeking to fulfill his promise. If he's seeking to kill Moses, it's because Moses did not circumcise Gershom, his first responsibility in the covenant. If he's seeking to kill Gershom, it's because God is cutting him off because he wasn't circumcised. Again, physical circumcision did not fulfill the requirement of the law, but circumcision was required in the law. And that's why God is seeking to kill. And you say, my goodness, I'm glad I grew up in a culture where they circumcised babies on the second day. Or my goodness, I wish I'd have grown up in a culture where they circumcised babies on the second day. i got to get circumcised this week. This is a very serious matter. All right? Just a reminder. Put away your phones. Right now, some of you are actually trying to get on your doctor's calendar for this week. Circumcision is fulfilled by and gives way to baptism in the New Testament. Colossians 2, many other New Testament passages make it very clear that baptism is now the covenant sign. Baptism is the fulfillment of and the expansion of circumcision. It's not just males anymore. It's males and females, young and old. 
It's not just Jews anymore. It's Jews and Gentiles. Uh, It's not um, uh, this uh, bloody uh, rite um, anymore. It's a rite that includes water because the blood of Jesus was shed. And now the shedding of blood is inappropriate. And so what we just talked about in all of that for circumcision, on your own time, think through the ramifications for baptism. That's yours to worry about. So what happened? Someone's about to die. A son is circumcised. God relents and has mercy, and he stays his hand. Why did it happen? God promised it would. He said if his people did not respond to his covenant by living their life ever before him, started with and signified with circumcision that he would kill them. But now the question, the next question is this, why didn't it happen? Why did God relent? Why did God let him alone? Verse 26. So think about it. Did Moses figure it out? Did he change his ways? Did he shape up just in time for God to let up? No. I mean, think about however you slice it. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Whoops. All right. However you look at it, Moses is presenting himself very poorly in the text. All right? Either he's the one convulsing on the ground because of a sin, or even worse, his son is convulsing on the ground, and he doesn't do anything about it. If Gershom is convulsing, Moses was complacent and silent and non-active in it. However you look at it, Moses is not looking good in the passage. Think about it. Moses' life was the opposite of blameless walk before God. It was the opposite of living life fully in the presence of God. When Yahweh met him at the burning bush, he reminded him of his covenant. He told him of his promises. He called him into the mission, and Moses flat out refused to follow. Finally, because of God's grace and forbearance and patience and understanding, Moses agrees to go. He then, it seems to me, lies to his father-in-law about why he's going back to Egypt not exactly embracing the call of God. And we find now that his adult sons have never been circumcised. He did not keep the one law of Genesis. The one rule has been broken. Why did God relent? Why didn't it happen? Okay, so we're at the place in the sermon. It's like the third or fourth point. This is where we always do the gospel part. This is where we always do the Jesus part, right? We're at the place in the sermon where I try and create this tension and you guys like, ooh, tension, I hope it's Jesus. We're kind of at... At this part where I bring in the gospel and like I say, you know, look in the passage. The, the New Testament says everything is about Jesus. Find Jesus. Where's Jesus? You're like, I know where he is. I mean, there's some obvious ones here. I should have you raise your hands, pat yourself on the back for finding Jesus in this passage. But I'm concerned that this is becoming, I'm concerned we're becoming immune to this. I'm actually quite concerned that we're taking the gospel point for granted. As I begin to think about it this week and I begin to think about my life, I began to realize that we're not bothered by the tension anymore. And as such, the tension never gives way to joy and worship and obedience. I have this, uh, I have five kids. And I have this thing I like to do with my five kids when they're, when they're preschoolers. Gentry is my kindergartner. She's too old for it. Liam is my toddler. Uh, he's too young for it. Uh, when they're walking away from me, I like to call out to them and have them come running back to me and say something like, hey, I forgot to tell you something. Come here real quick. And they run over there. I whisper in their ear, psst, your dad, he's wild about you. I'm like, I love you too, dad. And then they walk off to get about seven feet away. Psst, 
hey, forgot to tell you something. Come here. Like, hmm. come on over. Psst. Your dad loves you. Six or seven times. If you catch them at the right age, you could do it six or seven times and they're shocked every time. <laughs> but eventually they get to the age where they can just tell in the inflection of my voice when I say, hey, I forgot to tell you something. Come here. They'll look over their shoulder and they'll go, yeah, yeah, you love me. <laughs> and they just walk on down the road. Every week, we have to run to Jesus. Every week, it's not this nice little hermeneutical jump where we talk about Jesus from the Old Testament. Every week, this is the Father saying, come here, I gotta tell you something. I love you. I think this is becoming perfunctory. I think it's becoming presumed. I think we're getting used to it. But even with that said, let's listen. Let's listen to the Father say to us, psst, I love you. Look to the text. We've been doing this for weeks now. It is our presupposition that this is ultimately about Jesus, that this foreshadows Jesus, that this screams for Jesus to make it make sense. How so? First, most obviously, blood is shed. What happened in between God seizing Moses, let's say, just for speculation, and God giving him relief? Blood was shed. Moses makes blood the emphasis pointed out in the narrative. Uh, In verse 25, Zipporah said, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And then Moses repeats it and tells us exactly when it was said in verse 26. It was when God let him alone that Zipporah said, a bridegroom of blood. So why did God let him alone? Because the blood of another was going to be shed in his place. Second, a little less obvious than blood if you were to raise your hand and tell me about how this points to Jesus. Zipporah is acting on Moses' behalf and Moses gets credit for it. This is most likely what's going on when she's throwing the foreskin at Moses. According to Genesis, who was supposed to circumcise Gershom? His dad. Who did it? His mom. Yet again, if you're keeping track, another place in the story where the human deliverer is delivered by a woman. His mom, his sister, his adopted mom, Pharaoh's granddaughter, and now his wife. Who gets credit? Moses. First blood, second, getting credit for something somebody else does. Third, the actual circumcision points to Jesus. This is the one that you probably weren't going to raise your hand on. Did you realize in Colossians, Paul says that the death of Jesus is a circumcision? Not only was Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, Luke chapter 2, his life was beautiful, it was mistake-free, it was gorgeous, it was lived every day in the presence of God. He says in the Gospels, I don't do anything and I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to do it. Now that's walking blameless in the presence of God. And then his, his incredible, beautiful, integrated, whole, circumcised heart life. In the end, he dies. He's naked. He's exposed. He's ashamed. He's bleeding. According to Paul, Colossians 2, he's circumcised. He is cut off from the land of the living. The only one who deserved to stay was sent away. It's exactly what Isaiah says in chapter 53. The song of the suffering servant, ultimately realizing Christ, 
We, we tend to remember these verses. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Verse eight, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for our transgressions. Have you ever heard of uh, Arland Williams? I never uh, knew this man's name. I never even knew the events of his life until this week. And I was listening to another uh, preacher preach on a passage unrelated uh, to our text. And I heard about this heroic uh, story on January 13, 1982. uh, Air Florida uh, Flight 90 took off from Washington, D.C. And it struggled to gain altitude in the inclement weather. And it crashed into the 14th Street Bridge. Before too long, the entire plane, except for the tail, was under the icy, frigid water. Eighty-four folks were on the flight. By the time the rescue helicopter got there, there were only six folks above water, and only one was moving. When the rescue line was dropped down into the water, Arlen Williams was the only passenger that could have put himself onto the line. Instead of saving himself at that point, he tied the line to another passenger. He waited multiple minutes for the helicopter to take the passenger to land and to come back. And then he put on a second, and he put on a third, and then he put on a fourth, and then he put on the fifth. When the helicopter came back for Arlen, the tail of the plane had shifted, had gone underwater, and he was killed. Why didn't it happen? Why did he let up? Why did he let him alone? Because Jesus Christ was the only human ever to be a covenant keeper. And instead of taking the lifeline out of the wreckage, He saves us, and he is cut off in our place. The only beautiful life was met with an ugly death. Hey, kid, your dad is wild about you. Your older brother, he is so fond of you. What happened? Why did it happen? Why didn't it happen? What happens? What happens to the man or the woman who experiences that depth of grace, that depth of love? Look at verses 27 and 28 very, very quickly. The Lord said to Aaron, this is Moses' older brother, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Okay, so take note of the literary pattern. I included 27 and 28 here because it goes. This is Moses putting a bow on the package. Okay, 24 to 26, Moses is met by someone. Something intimate happens. Someone speaks. Verses 27 and 28, Moses is met by someone. Something intimate happens. Someone speaks. And so Moses has written this in such a way that he wants to draw our attention to the two meetings. And he wants us to consider how they're different. And he wants us to ask the question, how did the first meeting uh, impact the second meeting? In the first meeting, Moses couldn't look any worse, any more disobedient, any more rebellious. But in the second meeting, Moses couldn't look any better. Moses does exactly what God told him to do. And this is back in chapter 3. This is verse 28 of chapter 4. And Moses told or made known to Aaron all the words of the Lord with, with which he had sent him to speak. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Why is Moses different? Why is he like a model citizen here? Why is he missional? Because he's been touched by the powerful and severe grace of God because he's actually been touched by the gospel and it's changing his life. This is the second time in the book of Exodus where God is mad. Instead of killing Moses, Aaron shows up. 
the older priestly brother. You can refer to the sermon several weeks ago to think through that. What happened to the man who more fully realized that he should have died, that God died in his place? He increasingly, in response to the powerful and severe grace, gladly gives his life to God and enjoys living in his presence. Let's pray. Jesus, we in fact do thank you. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for our perfunctory nature. We thank you that your gospel is big enough to handle how we get cold and calculated towards you. We thank you that your life and death was so sincere and so honest and so beautiful that you can cover religious people like us. Would you please grab a hold of our hearts and melt us by the power of your gospel? Would you, would you just grab us by the collar and force us to see the depth of your grace and the beauty of your gospel? God, we need to be more on mission as a congregation. I need to be more on mission in my life. And this text is telling me that I will gladly do it wholeheartedly and beautifully to the extent to which I've encountered you and your grace and your gospel. Would you impact us in this way, we pray. 